from wallstack.ca. Welcome to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series, where we discuss all kinds of financial principles, concepts, and products. Our aim is to make money matters simple again. Hey there. Have you ever wondered how you can use ETFs in your portfolio and what it means? Warren Buffett says it's one of the best and most cost-effective ways of investing for retail investors. Well, in this podcast, we will unpack the history, size, and reasoning for using ETFs in a portfolio. Patrick Healy, president of Nukshuk Capital, is in the virtual studio with me today. Nukshuk is one of the first companies I came across that uses ETFs as a building block to build and actively manage portfolios for clients. So basically, instead of using stocks to manage a portfolio for a client, they use ETFs. It therefore makes sense to chat to Patrick today to give our listeners a better understanding about ETFs. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Vincent. It's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So let's let's talk about ETFs and just start the conversation describing to our listeners what is an ETF and then secondly, the broad types available for investors. Okay. Well, ETF is an acronym for exchange traded funds. And that means they're a composite of securities that make up, for the most part, um, an index. And, and the launch of ETFs began in 1990 in Canada with an ETF being issued that would track indexes and largely by use of, of institutions initially. But since that time, they've become a very mainstream uh, retail product as well as an institutional product. And most of the growth since that time, if you look at, you'd see quite a large transition away from mutual funds into ETFs. Mutual funds were much more popular in the 90s and much more widely adopted and accepted, but they've become far more uh, adopted by both retail and institutional investors since then. Patrick, often people equate ETFs to passive investments. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the right analogy to use normally? What, what is passive? So passive meaning you're buying something and and holding it. You're not uh, you're not trading it. You're not shifting from one thing to the next. And so we're launched to be passive investments to give people exposure to specific indexes, things that you could draw a line around. And ETFs are being issued to give people specific exposure. Since that time, there are ETFs that uh, have a more active approach, but for the most part, where they're best known and most widely used, particularly for institutions and and retail investors, is to have a passive exposure to something specific. So is it it fair to say that that if I I buy a Vanguard ETF that tracks the S&P 500, for example, that that ETF would effectively buy small portions or mirror small portions of each of those shares in that in that index based on the market capitalization in that index. Yes, that's exactly correct. And when you think about the application of that, for a retail investor, for example, who wanted to have a diversified portfolio, in order to buy exposure to each of the holdings in the S&P 500, it would be very difficult to do with the likes of, of what most of our portfolios look like as retail investors. But with, with 
with very little amounts of money, you can have exposure directly to the S&P 500 by owning an ETF. And ETFs are very cost effective and tax efficient. So you're not, you're, you're, your returns are not being gobbled up by fees like they would be perhaps in, in some of the larger and higher cost mutual funds. Rather, you're, giving, you're getting very cost effective exposure to the broad index. And as you say, a relative proportionate amount of each of the holdings in that index with one, with one trade, basically. So that, yeah, so that's what you say in terms of the costing. It's a lot cheaper to buy the ETF and get exposure to the, in this case, 500 stocks as opposed to individually go and buy them for yourself? Not to mention just the logistics of it all are quite challenging. So it, it, as I said, was invented primarily for institutions. And to this day, if you look at, you know, pension funds or sovereign wealth funds, these are, these are funds that have billions of dollars in them in many cases. You'll, if you looked at their holdings, you'll see in many cases the portfolio managers of those large sums of money are often using ETFs to gain exposure to indexes like the S&P 500. So, I mean, it is interesting to think about, yes, I'm buying an index, which people normally say it's passive because I don't make active decisions around those stocks that's in that portfolio. But to some extent, if you think about it, you know, if a certain stock drops in market value and falls outside of the S&P 500, it doesn't, it's not part of that index anymore. And at the same time, if a stock does very well from a market capitalization perspective and it moves into that index, then by default, it's part of the ETF. So yes, I mean, it, it is passive, but I guess there is always some level of, let's call it active management that I don't perform but it will find it kind of self into that portfolio eventually. And, and yes, most of the indices are driven by market cap capitalization. But I mean, you do have, am I right? You do have indices created that are not based on that one factor, but it's based on a number of other beta driven factors, which is not just market cap capitalization. Correct. So to your point about the S&P 500, the S&P itself will make decisions around securities in the index and from time to time take some out and add some in. So all you have to do as an investor is own the actual ETF and that will happen for you. You don't need to rebalance, but there is some level of rebalancing that goes on. But ETFs do give people the opportunity to be exposed to specific industries or themes that they may be quite optimistic about or, or have an interest in. So, for example, for people who are quite fascinated with technology, there are ETFs that have investments in what they refer to as innovation. So there have been some ETFs, ARC being one of them, which has made headlines in 2020 with very spectacular returns that were driven largely by the pandemic. And, you know, just to look at that example, it, it's, it's performed less well over the last couple of years, but it's given people exposure to an index of companies that are chosen by a portfolio manager as being leaders in their space in innovation. If somebody wanted to have an investment, for example, in robotics, they could, or genetics, 
Or to use another example, in the pandemic, when we were all buying pets and pets accessories, one of the ETF companies wisely issued an ETF that tracked companies in the pet and pet related industry. So you can be very specific about your investments by using ETFs. And it seems like, you know, on a regular basis, as themes change, as interests evolve, the ETF companies have been very clever about finding ways of giving investors passive exposure to specific areas of the stock and bond market. Thanks, Patrick. I know that there's also ETFs that came out in Canada, I think last year, year before that tracks Bitcoin, but also something like shorts. It, it, there are indices that are tracking the short market so that I make money when the market falls. So what you kind of just say is that really there are, there are ETFs that can really track anything. You know what? It's getting pretty close to that. Anything is a pretty extreme term, but I think we're almost there. I think that in, in, in our creative minds, we would probably find it very difficult to, to be stumped about ETFs that don't exist around themes we might create, for example. So as you point out, ETFs were invented to give institutions exposure to large markets. And since that time, they've evolved to give people exposure to specific niche markets, regions, for example, parts of the stock market. Uh, Of course, that includes now the bond market as well. But you can also bet against the, the markets themselves by using ETFs. There are ETFs that are designed to short or bet against the market. So in other words, they will go up in value if if the market that they are shorting goes down. So some people use them to hedge their positions. Other people who have a very are very convinced, meaning they have a very bullish view of something, there are ETFs that give you leverage, added exposure. For example, you could buy an ETF that gives you twice the return of the S&P 500. Even some of them are three times the return which works in, in, in your favor and can work against you, obviously. So if you're right, if you're convinced that a particular index or sub-index is going to go up, there are many ETFs that give you three times or two times the exposure to it. Um, but I can tell you as a portfolio manager, I've watched many retail investors get that bet wrong and it will be you know, proportionately hurtful if, if things go down because it's three times the problem, basically. So, uh, no, that's great. So there are definitely a, I, I guess the, the most assets of ETFs are really in vanilla kind of offerings. Like, as we said, the S&P 500, the Toronto Stock Exchange, but and, and then we also get these exotic ones that you talked about. Just quickly in terms of pricing, what is the, the price range that you've seen in the market with, with ETFs? For the most part, I mean, there are ETFs like massive index ETFs that some companies are offering without there being any management fees. But I I would say, and I'm not sure I understand the the dynamics of that or how that even works. So I've been somewhat suspicious of it, to be honest. But I think that, you know, when we look at the types of ETFs we use for our clients, for broader index ETFs, you can generally find good quality ETFs with very accurate tracking of the underlying investments for as low as, you know, three to 10 basis points. So meaning less than one tenth of 1% to own a a market like the S&P 500. As ETFs become more complex and they require 
a number of different tools to to execute what they're doing, or in some cases, they're, if they're shorting, for example, there might be borrowing costs associated. You can see ETF management fees scale up to close to one percent, but rarely beyond that. There are, I mean, there are some, but rarely beyond one percent. And relative to mutual funds, where sort of your average everyday mutual fund is probably all in, has management fees that are well in excess of two and a half percent, two two and a half percent. They seem like you know very good value. And there are other reasons from a transparency, liquidity, tax efficiency. We think personally that they're a better way for the person who's looking to get exposure to something specific. We think that they make more sense than mutual funds. But that being said, people use mutual funds if they don't really know how to approach something and they need a portfolio manager to do that for them. So maybe just on that point with mutual funds, Patrick, you you mentioned earlier that the first ETFs were started in, I don't know, 1990 or close to there. Mutual funds, I guess, were started in the 60s or 70s. I'm actually not completely sure. But when you look at when you look at the market flow, the assets flow, where, where does it go? Retail money and institutional money? So there, the trends have definitely been leaning in the direction of ETFs quite meaningfully for many years now. And I think that, you know, I, I've been doing this since 1992. And when I think about when I started in this business in the early 90s, People were just starting to, and and I'm talking about in Canada, people were just starting to adopt the idea of owning mutual funds. And in fact, there was a term that people have been around for a while might recall, but I remember this as as a broker, an investment advisor at BMO Nesbitt Burns in the early 90s. There were a number of people that we were getting as new clients who were coming from the banks, and they were people who had invested in GICs their whole lives but we're now being introduced to the idea of mutual funds. And they were being referred to, at least in the offices of many of the the brokerage firms, as GIC refugees, people who were leaving the world of GICs and entering the world of mutual funds for the first time. So I think that that's probably when most people can sort of think about when they began investing in mutual funds, despite the fact that they were invented earlier than that. And ETFs were not really a mainstream product at that time. So since that time, people are using them for different reasons. And if I was just to encapsulate how I would view them as a as licensed portfolio manager, for someone who, like me, who is helping clients and making decisions for them, I prefer to use ETFs because you know we feel we have some level of education that enables us to decide where clients' money should be, which markets, which regions, which subsectors, for example. So if we're making those decisions for the clients, then the most effective thing we can do is choose ETFs that give us exposure and we will manage when we're in and out of those those sectors, for example. But for someone who doesn't have that level of expertise, mutual funds have been an opportunity where instead of buying the sector, you're buying a manager. You're, You're giving... Uh, the nod to someone who you think has the expertise and wherewithal to actually outperform the indexes themselves. We're skeptical because the truth is, and there are lots of studies that, that back this up, and it's gone on for many, many years, is the average portfolio manager underperforms the market over time. In fact, the, the numbers are quite convincing. Like it's it's in the, the league of like 90% of all portfolio managers will underperform the index over a a several year period. 
So with that information in hand, knowing that, you know, you, you're going to be lucky if you find the, the, the few that do, we, we believe in probabilities. And the probability is that the market itself will outperform virtually all portfolio managers in the world. And therefore, we choose to own the market in a tax efficient and cost effective way. And for the most part, we're teeing off from the front tees every time. So, so that's, that's the rationale that I think has backed up the momentum shift in, in, in investing to, to cause institutional and retail investors alike to say, I'm happy just owning the index because for the most part, you line it up against almost any mutual fund in the world and it's going to outperform most of them. And is that, is that because most fund managers and mutual funds would be more, let's call it more conservative or value driven? So looking for more high dividend stocks and maybe lower price to earnings ones. So fund managers add their value by by choosing those ones, whereas ETFs are by by the largest part tracking index. So it's more growth orientated. I think it's a couple of things. I think part of it is the cost structure. So a mutual fund has a big bogey to overcome in that it has, you know, probably two to two and a half percent of fees at minimum for the most part to cover before that they even would even equal the performance of their underlying benchmark. But it also boils down to this. And even the likes of Warren Buffett have been on record many times over saying, you're going to be wrong more times than you're right. So despite all the education we all have, all the time we spend studying the markets, it's a very humbling business. And most portfolio managers, if not all, will be wrong more times than they're right. It's, it's, it's kind of like looking at baseball where you have a batting average. The best, the best batters in the world might have hit the ball you know, less than four out of 10 times. So the same thing goes for stock picking. And to, in order to be right, you have to be quite exceptional. And there aren't that many people who've done that on a consistent basis. So again, going back to probabilities, the statistics back this up. The indexes are the gold standards themselves. They outperform almost every portfolio manager in the world. And if you can buy them in a cost-effective way uh, and tax-efficient way like you can with ETFs, then why wouldn't you do that? And I think that's the decision that you know we've made as a firm, but institutions have also made, and many more portfolio managers and well-educated retail investors are doing themselves as well. Patrick, thank you so much. Let's close the conversation by just talking about management and the different options clients would have. So I had a, a previous discussion with Jamie Brubracher from Seidel, and, and we we discussed this concept, you know, when clients, it's ideal for them to have their own portfolio and when it makes sense to go to, let's call it a robo-advisor, and then when it makes sense to go to a portfolio manager like, like you, for example, as well. So... The first one, how would a, a retail investor use ETFs? So what is the, what is the best and, and safest way for retail investors to make use of an ETF in their, in their portfolios? So I kind of view investors as having like falling into a couple of different streams. There are self-directed investors, people who are quite confident in their own skills to create their own investment portfolios. And for those investors, 
They have plenty of firms, you, you know, all the banks have self-directed brokerage firms, and then there are other more specialized or technology-driven brokerage firms like Simple, for example, who have algorithms designed to create portfolios for clients based on certain investment objectives. And you're placing all your faith in, in, in the algorithms, which are effectively robots. So there's that way of doing it. And you're placing all your faith in, in technology to make these decisions for you, but you're the one driving it. Other self-directed investors feel they have enough education of their own to make those decisions and don't need a robot, so to speak. And then there are people sort of in between who feel they have a decent amount of knowledge about the market, but not the time or confidence to make decisions themselves, but want to be consulted along the way. And they would likely work with what referred to in the industry as a full service broker or an investment advisor, as they're typically referred to at most of the banks. And then on the other extreme are people who have said, I I have a a day job. I'm busy. I don't have time to do this myself. I've accumulated substantial assets. I would like to hand this off to somebody who is a licensed portfolio manager, which requires a, a substantial amount of accreditation and time in this business. And they would hand it off to people like us where we're making all the decisions for them. And, and how we do that is by understanding upfront what their objectives are, what they're trying to do, what their risk tolerances are, but really understanding upfront what their expectations and needs are and then taking it from there on the client's behalf. And, and typically in that model, like ours, and probably like Seidel's, we would, we would establish upfront how frequently we're meeting with clients. Well, I like to ask clients as well, tell me about things that you've liked and disliked about past relationships, because there's a lot of rich information in that. When you're taking the keys from someone and, and taking control, they're still in the car, so to speak, but they might be in the back seat. And I want to make sure that I'm not getting chirped from behind. And, and to, in order to do that, I need to really understand what my clients expect from me. And so that's the model that we work under, where we're discretionary portfolio managers, and we charge clients uh, an annual management fee to, to look after their money. Patrick, thank you so much. That uh, That's a great discussion. And, and thank you so much for for giving our listeners a, a broad overview and, and, and depth one in terms of the vanilla ETFs available, but also the corner cases and the more exotic ones and how they can use that in, in a portfolio for themselves. Or then, you know, to contact you if, if that portfolio is to that level that, that kind of makes sense for them to get a a professional involved to manage a portfolio and in your case on ETFs and not on stocks. So yes. Patrick, thank you so much. It was great talking to you and hope to see you soon again in, in Toronto. Sounds good. Thanks, Vincent. Hey, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. You can find our content on wallstack.ca or on LinkedIn. I'm Vincent Hayes. And you've been listening to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series.